Are we ready? Are we on? Thank you. Well, once again, welcome to our study in Colossians. I think this is lesson number 14, if my numbering system is correct. If it isn't, we're close to number 14. And this morning, moving right along, we're going to be in verse 14. And I don't want to either encourage us or discourage us about the speed that we're taking, but once we get into, if you understand what I'm meaning, the ethical part of Colossians, do this, don't do that, and so on. We're going to move a little more quickly. But I felt it was necessary to take a much longer time to build a firm foundation so that as we look at not only the rest of this letter, but as we look at any of the ethical um, requirements of the Bible in obedience to God's will, do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there, etc., we need to have a very firm foundation so we'll know why we're doing what we're doing, for whom are we doing it. So when we are assailed by the enemy, assailed by the world, assailed by our own flesh and attitudes and fears, we're going to be able to be anchored like a tree of righteousness, our roots so deeply, firmly entrenched in the gospel. Yeah, we may lose a branch or two and some leaves may blow off and we may bend and sway and whatever, but we will not be uprooted, amen? So we want to make sure that we're rooted and grounded in love and in this gospel in a way that when we're attacked, not if, but when, we're going to stand in righteousness and show that the gospel is, in fact, the power of God unto salvation. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you that... The occasion for Paul's writing moved him by the Spirit to write this and so much more. Father, not only for the blessing of that immediate congregation and those people, but Father, that your word is proclaimed through this man and the other apostles so that the church throughout the ages until Jesus returns is enriched, is strengthened, is led, is protected, is provided for. Father, thank you for this word. Father, our prayer is that this church, specifically because we are here, but your church in general, Father, that we would be increasingly more committed to the reading and the memorization and the walking out of your word. Father, cause your word to become much more preeminent in us than it ever has before. Father, give us an urgency, a passion to know you, and we know you through your word by the Spirit, to experience you, to walk with you, so that in the final analysis all may see that on the earth, dwells God in his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you remember last week we saw that we were qualified as saints as a result of our having been delivered from the domain of darkness into the, and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So qualified as saints in light and so Paul describes what happened to qualify us, what event occurred that qualified us. 
Well, the event that occurred was to deliver us from the domain of what? Darkness. You see, saints in light. We were in darkness. And if you read the New Testament, just like the Old, you're going to see this interaction, this antagonism between light and dark throughout the New Testament in the Apostle Paul, and especially in the Gospel of John and in the letters of John. Light is the work of God and the presence of God. Darkness is the presence and work of evil and sin. So last week, remember, we talked about that great revolution that occurred that we experienced exodus in our own lives when we were saved, just as Israel experienced that great exodus by the death of the Lamb years ago. And so this morning, we're in verse number 14 in Colossians chapter 1, and Paul is going to explain the work that our deliverer accomplished that freed us from Satan's rule. The work. What did he do? Now remember, Colossians 1.13 says what? We have been delivered from what? The domain of darkness, and we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Then verse 14 begins what? In whom we have what? Redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. And so last week, what the deliverer did, he transferred us. He destroyed the kingdom of darkness. This morning, what was it about him that, what did he do to, to transfer us? What was the activity that broke the power of Satan over us? Well, this morning, these two words, redemption, forgiveness. These are the two words. This is the activity that our deliverer used to attack and destroy the kingdom of darkness. Redemption, forgiveness. So let's begin with in whom. Paul begins with, in whom we have. It is critical for us to understand that it is our union in or with Christ. Now, remember, we've spoken about our union in Christ. It is our union in Christ, our union with Christ, our having been joined into, having been placed into Christ that is the reason we have everything we have, that we are everything we are, and that we will inherit everything we inherit. Absolutely everything is because of one primary basic issue, and that is this. We are in union with Christ. When did this union occur? Remember in Ephesians 1.4, when did it happen? When did this happen? Before the foundation of the world. We have been in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does this mean? That God, according to his own free will, had a people in mind, and not just a group of folks, but having every single believer personally and intimately in mind as if you were the only one before he created anything, every single believer, Old Testament, New Testament, was personally in God's heart and mind and has always been, because if you allow me to say it, God hasn't had a new thought. 
And when he created the heavens and the earth and said, let us make man in our image, every single one of us were in that verse because Jesus has accomplished the good of that verse and we were in Christ when he accomplished the good of that verse. Amen? And so why are we here today? Because God decreed, he decreed that all of those whom I have in my heart and mind, whom I will create at various times in history and scatter throughout the regions of the world, that these people, according to my timing through the gospel message, will be brought into my kingdom. I will lose none. Remember in John chapter 10, I'm not going to lose any. And none of them are going to fall out of my hand. And at the end of time, all of my people will be finally gathered together around my throne forever, rejoicing in the new heaven and in the new earth. In whom? And so it's our union with Christ is the basis for all that God has done and will do for us. Remember Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, who what? Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. Remember that? In Christ. We are the rich recipients of all that Christ has achieved. Why? Because we were in Him when He did it. When he did what he did, we were there. Remember Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. We're talking about God's ability to place us somewhere when we're not even existing. Therefore, because of our union with Christ, we are the recipients of his work of redemption, which results in our forgiveness. So let's talk about redemption. And let's see if I can get through this this morning within the two hours allotted to me. Because I tell you what, the old guy who's going to be preaching this morning is going to be very upset if he doesn't get enough time to preach that message that he thinks he has. <clears throat> we have redemption. Redemption, redeem, to redeem, has to do with a price that is paid. It is a price that is paid. So biblically, when the Bible is talking about this issue of redemption, redeeming, redeemed, it has to do with the price that is paid for our sin. It is the price that God himself establishes and requires that if our sin is to be paid for, that this is the price that has to be paid. The price is established by God, and if we're to be forgiven, the price must be paid for, and the price is paid for to God. It is God's price. It has to be paid. Redemption is that activity, and it is God who is, if you would, being satisfied with the price of that redemption. Now, how did this happen? Well, when Adam sinned, Remember, he repudiated God's right to rule in favor of Satan's right. We've gone through that enough. Everybody should know that by now. Adam's sin caused the entire mankind to collapse in sin. And so when he sinned, he repudiated God's right to rule in favor of Satan's right, which gave Satan authority. And now Jesus must come and take that authority back through being himself the redemption price. So because God is just, remember, God is righteous and just. Because he's just, he cannot ignore any rebellion or lawlessness. 
Remember what Exodus 30, 23, 7 says, I will not acquit, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to say equip, acquit the guilty. In other words, anyone who sins must pay the price for the sin. No one ever has nor ever will be freed from paying the price of sin. No one ever gets away with this. Before God, every single sin of every person who ever lives or who will ever live has to be paid. Do we get that? There's no such thing as, you know, this thing sweeping under the carpet and so on. Every sin must be paid for. The payment for sin is the wrath of God, eternal separation, which the Bible calls death. So we, do we have that clear, Christians? Every sin is paid for. The good news is, in whom is it paid for? Is it paid for in me personally as I endure and suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell because of my refusal to receive Christ? Or is it paid for in Christ as he himself becomes the bearer of my sin? Whichever way it is, every sin will be paid for. Every sin will be paid for. All who sin must pay the price of lawlessness. So what does Romans 6.23 sin? say? For the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. And this spiritual death has to do, remember, with God's wrath. Remember Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness of men. So let's make sure that we get right up front what's going on. When the Bible talks about redemption, when Paul says, in whom we have redemption, <clears throat> Paul is specifically talking about the requirement of God's holiness, his justice, not to allow even one sin to go unpunished, not to ignore even one sin, not even once. And that has to do then with the issue of redemption in Christ. So what is God to do? He's created man in his own image. Man sins. Now, I've actually heard some people say this. Adam sinned. Well, God could have wiped out the whole race and started all over again. No way he could not have. He could not have. It was impossible. Why? Because, you see, his purpose in creation was to achieve a goal. And Julio, if man sinned and it looked like the goal of God was not going to be achieved, and God said, well, let's wipe them out and let's start all over again. Who's going to know? Who would know? God would know. And what would he know? My purpose was not achieved. So once God says, let there be light, he has required in himself freely, committed himself freely to making sure that what he's going to do, knowing ahead of time what would happen, making sure that his goal is going to be accomplished. You understand this? And so when we get to a place, well, suppose Jesus hadn't come. Suppose it's foolishness to talk like that. 
because there was no way in creation that Jesus Christ was not coming once God said, let there be light. It was a committed issue in God's heart. So let's not talk that way. I hear it regularly. Suppose Jesus weren't, and he, you, it's foolishness to talk like that. It's foolishness because it assumes that maybe God, this is the only way there is. This is God's commitment. Do we see that this morning? You see, we're in the hands of a committed God. We're in the hands of a sovereign God. We're in the hands of a purposeful God. We are in the hands of a faithful God. We are part of a plan that has always been in His mind and will be accomplished by His power. Amen? That's who we are. We have redemption. So what is God to do? He created man to be in his image bearer, image bearer, but man has sinned. Now all humanity is subject to the penalty of sin and the rule of Satan. Remember that last week. In order for God to rescue his people, and he is going to rescue them, why? In creating, he committed himself to rescue his people because he knew when he created Adam, he would sin. God was prepared and already committed. That when Adam sinned, he himself would pay the price. He himself would redeem his people. This was the heart of God. In order for God to rescue his people, their sin must be paid for. And if they are to be saved, only God is qualified to pay for sin. You remember when it says we've been qualified to be saints in light? Remember that? We were qualified because only God himself is qualified to release us from sin through the redemption of Christ. Only God. This means that when Paul writes, in whom, in whom, remember God's son, in whom we have redemption. When he writes, in whom we have redemption, he is telling us that God himself redeems us in Christ who becomes our price of redemption. He is our redemption. Isaiah, it's in Isaiah several times. For instance, Isaiah 49, 26. I am the Lord your Savior, and I am your Redeemer. I am your Redeemer. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Remember, this is what Paul says has been done. Christ, God was in Christ reconciling. Now, that's the issue of bringing back into relationship through this redemption activity. Reconciling the world unto himself. How did God do it? In Christ. Where were we? In Christ. Remember? In whom? We were in Christ. And so when Christ was reconciling the world you know, back to himself, we were there as part of that activity, experiencing rather the good of that activity of being reconciled back to God through the death of his son, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to us the reconciliation message. Now, why did God not count our trespasses against us, Gordon? Because he says in Exodus, I'm not going to let you go free. If you sin, you got to pay. Well, what does it mean? God didn't count their trespasses against us. How can it say God didn't on one hand and on the other hand, I'm going to? Well, how can it happen? Well, look at the last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What does it say? 521. For our sake, God made, remember, his beloved son, Christ, to be sin, the bearer of sin, the sin bearer. Jesus became judicially sinful. God placed on Jesus. Jesus willingly embraced our sin 
and became judicially sinful. He did not become personally sinful. He did not become personally sinful. But he took upon himself our sin. And when he did this, he took upon himself the full penalty and payment of that sin. He knew what he was doing. He came to do this. This was part of the entire, if you would, package of God in the Godhead. This was the Father's will to create. It was the Son's good joy and pleasure to redeem. And it was the Holy Spirit's wonderful ability to apply that redemption that would occur when God said, let there be light. So because a man sinned, because a man sinned, only a man could pay for that sin to satisfy God's justice. Only a man could pay for it. An angel couldn't come. Why couldn't an angel pay for God's justice because of our sin? Why not? I mean, angels are pretty good. They, they, you know, they haven't sinned. They, they got a lot of power. You know, they're, they're pretty good super beings. Aren't they? Why couldn't an angel pay for our sin? Why? Because, you see, an angel isn't God. When we sin, when Adam sinned, that sin and every other sin move from the context of time, you know, a time-bound activity. And it was shot as an arrow, if you would, against an eternal God. And it left the context of time and went into eternity. And that one sin, just that one sin, let alone every other sin, became then an eternal affront and attack against God. Why? Because God's eternal. So the only way that that sin can be paid for, it must bear the eternal price, the price of God's eternal wrath against that sin. Do you understand? It left a time context and went out into eternity, if you would, and came in contact and affronted an eternal God. So only God himself, being eternal, could pay this price. Now, what does that cause you to realize? Jehovah's Witnesses are incorrect. Why? Because they say that Jesus was a created being. And Jesus, being a created being, cannot in himself pay the eternal satisfaction of God. Do you see it? You see why the devil wants you to believe something different about Jesus than what the Bible says. And by the way, we'll get into the credentials next week. You know, in verses 15 to the rest of this section of Scripture. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 5, 21 says. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All of God's people in Christ will experience resurrection power. Therefore, it's necessary for God's beloved son to become a man in order to redeem God's people from their sin. So what is Matthew 1.21? The angel tells Joseph, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. A man sinned. A man has to pay for that sin. And there's only one man who can pay for that sin. God himself in Christ must become a human being. 
and must live as a human being and must live without sin and must then take on himself all of the sin of God's people and condemn it to death. Now, did you know what I just said? He takes unto himself all the sin of God's people. I did not say he took unto himself all the sin of everybody who ever sinned. Because you see, if he paid for the sin of those who aren't his people, then everybody goes to heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that. He takes on himself the sin of his people. And the sin that he doesn't take unto himself, those people paid that sin in themselves forever, the cost of the wrath of God. So Jesus takes on himself only a portion of the sin of mankind. Now, he has the potential of having paid for every sin of every human being. But it was God's choice that he would only pay for the sin of God's people. So it is God's people alone who are forgiven of sin. No one else is. <clears throat> you see, in Jesus, God was in Christ as a man. Hebrews 2.14, you remember? Who lived without any sin, Hebrews 4.15 so that he alone is qualified to redeem us by paying the price. Romans 3, 21 to 26 is an incredible section of Scripture that at least become somewhat familiar with. Romans 3, 21 to 26. So he paid the price of God's justice for our sin, thus ransoming us from the sin and Satan. So when Paul says we have redemption, he is remembering that all of this has been pictured in the, Old, in the Old Testament. Remember in Genesis 3, Adam sinned. So what happened in Genesis 3? When Adam sinned, verse number 6 said Adam sinned, and he ate, verse 7, is the great revelation of God's mercy. People don't see God's mercy right away, but 3, 7, you should have had the next verse, and Adam and Eve dropped dead. In the day that you eat it, you're going to die. Remember that? Do you remember that verse? 2, 17. But the day they ate of it, they still, they hiding. They ain't dead. They quivering, but they ain't dead. So mercy. But why could God do that? Why could he, quote, overlook? It looks like he's overlooking. It looks like he's acquitting the guilty. How could he do that? Because you have Genesis 3, what? 21. What does 321 said? And God did what? He went to the clothing store and he bought a suit for them. He clothed them with the skin of an animal. What does that mean? That something innocent had to die. Blood was shed so that their sin could be covered over. So that Adam and Eve could have a relationship with God that without killing them, and that covered over sin through the death of an innocent was a picture of God one day bringing forth that innocent lamb who would in himself collect all the sin of all of God's people all the years that they have ever lived and cover it, place it all into this great and mighty lamb of God who through the shedding of his blood freed his people. Amen. You see, so 321 is a major verse to know. 
Somebody said to me the other day something about God is not merciful in the Old Testament. I said, are you kidding? Look at verse 7 of Genesis, and they don't know what he means. And I said, there begins the mercy of God. I would say that Genesis 3, 7 is identified theologically in many places, but one of the places I would say it's identified is in Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians 2, 4 explains Genesis 3, 7. I'm not going to tell you what that means. If you haven't seen it, you go back and look. Ephesians 2, 4 explains why Genesis 3, 7. You just do it on your own. I don't have time. If Bill and Steve and Phil and all the other guys would give me three hours, we would take a little more time, but I have to move along. Where am I in my notes? Oh, <clears throat> this is also pictured, this freedom, this redemption price. Look, in the Garden of Eden, a redemption price was paid. Redemption occurred in the Garden of Eden. It was a foreshadowing. It was a picture. It was a real redemption Adam and Eve's sin were really put away or covered over. They really did not have to pay for their own sin. But only because God in doing this was anticipating the Lamb of God, remember, in John 1, 29. And this is what is pictured, remember, in the Passover when the Lord says in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over. So what does he tell the Jews to do? He says, Take a lamb, everybody take a lamb in the family. Everybody have a lamb, right? And kill the lamb and pour its blood into the basin. And take hyssop, you know, that long-looking kind of stringy, flowery thing. Put it in the basin and cover the lentil and the doorpost. Amen? So the entire, do you know what the basin is, by the way? The basin is the bottom of the door frame that is kind of hauled out a little bit. That's the basin. We're not talking about a little jar. And so when they put the blood in there and they apply it all, you have a total wall of blood, a total wall of blood that every Israelite is standing within that context so that when the angel of death, God's angel of vengeance and wrath upon sin, especially in the Egyptians firstborn, you remember the context specifically, but in a larger context, the angel, God says, when I see the blood, what am I going to do? I will pass over. You see, I will cover over. I will put away. I will keep those sins for another day. I will gather them up, and if you would, put them in the vault of my memory, and I will store all the sin of all these people all these years, and I will bring them to bear into one man, into one man, and he will pay the full price. That's what Passover is all about, correct? So what happens? When Jesus pays the full price. And again, we're going through this very quickly. I feel like I'm on a freight train going south down fast. The forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus die? Why? So that God's purpose in creation may be manifested. And what was God's purpose in creation? That God have a people. And so Jesus died so that we, his people might be forgiven of the only issue that is between us and God negatively, and that is our sin. You see, there's only one thing wrong in this world. It's sin. Why do we have this thing in Iraq? Sin. Why do we have racism? Sin. I mean, if you take 
S-K-I-N. If you take the K out of skin, you'll see the answer. It's sin. Why do we have hatred and adultery? Sin. Why do we have distrust, lying, stealing? Why? 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 Tell me why. Help me to know why. Sin. 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 Everything is reduced to one issue. It's sin. Everything. So if you want to know what in the world is going on in this world, and then sometimes I do that. Why? Sin. Very simple. Sin. So what is God's solution? Redemption in Christ. Forgiveness. So what is the result? Forgiveness of our sin. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Exodus 12, 23, I will pass over. I will forgive. I will not hold their sin against them. I will not punish them for their sin. I will punish something else at that immediate time that will be a shadow of punishing someone else in the fullness of time. The death of the Passover, the innocent lamb, was a picture of God's lamb who would die for the sake of his people. Remember John 1, 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus and what he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world being the world of his people. The world of his people. As Satan gained authority over humanity in Adam, he also lost authority in Christ. I love this verse, 1 John 3.8. It's the second half of 1 John 3.8. I love this verse. You need to memorize it. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose. What purpose? What purpose? To what? Destroy the works of Satan. Memorize that verse. 1 John 3.8, second half of the verse. For the Son of God appeared for this purpose. Why? To destroy the work of Satan. Next time you're buffeted about by Satan, you quote this. I'm in Christ. You may be kicking me now, but one day, sucker, you're going to be in the lake of fire and I'm going to be rejoicing in heaven. Amen? Yes. How does he destroy it? God's justice is fully satisfied in Jesus' death, who as a man, yet it's imperative that Jesus is a real man. And we're going to talk about how that happens when we talk about the, in the image of the invisible God, remember? And we're going to talk about the firstborn of creation. That begins next week in verse 15. He begins to explain what does this mean, a man, and how to become a man, and whatever. The, that's coming next week. So we just have to wait. God's justice is fully satisfied in Jesus' death. Can you get this? If any of us ever struggle with the issue of guilt and unforgiveness, Please get this. God's justice is fully, finally, and forever satisfied in the death of Christ. There's no such thing for those who are in Christ to be unforgiven. I don't repent today in order to get forgiven because I am forgiven. Therefore, I can repent or turn away from or have a different attitude. Forsake my sin. Do you see it? I know there's teaching out there that if you don't repent, you won't be forgiven, and then you may go. That's not true. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says confess your sin. Agree with God. Agree with God. And not only agree with God about I sin. That was wrong of me to say that, to do that, to think that, to go there. But then agree with God's action. Turn away. 
repent, turn away, don't do it again. You know, the simplest, and we can't, sometimes we, I, I am actually this simple in counseling, but sometimes you have to build up to it. When you come to counseling because of sin, I only have one word for you. Two words, what? Stop it. No, no, no. Well, you see, no, no, no. Well, we have to sometimes go into some detail. But, but the answer is, TC, what? Stop it. Are you in Christ? Stop it. Lester, are you in Christ? Stop it. Am I in Christ? Stop it. Read Romans 6, the first 13 verses. Stop it. Did we get that? Stop it. Just stop it. Is that a simple sermon? Can you imagine a man getting up to preach the, 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 the mystery of lawlessness and sin in the church and stands up there and he says, here's my sermon this morning. Stop it and walks away. That's all he needs to say. Anything more is not superfluous, but builds on that issue. You see, Jesus paid the full redemption price that God required for our sin. The Bible says Jesus released himself into the Father's hand. Father, did you, did you hear what I just said? He decided when he was dying. Father, I what? Commit myself into your hands. It is finished. Jesus experienced the price at the cross and in his death that we should have eternally experienced. But he, the eternal son of God, and how this happened, we don't know. Within a context of the last three hours, especially, I didn't say only, especially. Why do I know that? Because the sun was darkened. Remember noon? The sun was darkened in darkness. And I think that was the intensity of the payment that Christ endured at the cross. Not that the other wasn't. Payment is crescendoing, I, crescendoing, I think. You may agree or disagree. But what we do agree on all is that this man in whom the eternal Son of God is dwelling by the Spirit experiences what we would have experienced for all eternity. I don't know how that works. Can anybody explain it? I don't know how that works. Doug, I don't get it. You know what I mean? It, it, I have no capacity for it. But this is why Jesus has to be the eternal one. You see, this is why an angel or created Jesus couldn't do it. It'd burn him up. I mean, literally, it'd burn him. Only the eternal one can experience this in himself. So when Jesus died to redeem us from our sin and he rose to give us eternal life, we were free from Satan's dominion. And what 2.14 of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, humanity, people, he, meaning Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, became a man, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's another great verse. Don't you see it? Do you see John, 1 John 1, 1 John 3, 8 in that verse? Destroy the works of the devil. As a result, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord so that God transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son because the price has been paid. Redemption has, been, has occurred. Satisfaction has occurred. Therefore, the giving of forgiveness and therefore bringing us into the kingdom. Listen to what Isaiah 51.11 says. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain oh, gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. I miss singing the Word of God. I miss singing some of these verses. I think we need to do a better job, but that's just for me today. See, here's, listen to these words in Jeremiah 31, and see if you can catch in this, in this section, Jeremiah 31 to 40, 34. See if you can catch in this section what we've been talking about. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He is giving this prophecy to Judah before the Babylonians are coming in, right before they come in. Here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them into the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, remember sin, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, <clears throat> and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, <clears throat> and they shall be my people, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, years later, years later, a man sat at a table. A man sat at a table. And he says this to his friends, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is being fulfilled in that meal that is anticipatory of the cross. My blood, redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, as a result, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son as His forever children. We have now been recreated in the image of God to fill the earth with the glory of God by making disciples of all nations. Amen. Next week, we're going to start talking about the credentials of this great deliverer. So come back next week. Thank you.